This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. I have the, uh, my name is John Sharbach, and I am a member at a church near downtown over by the university called Providence Church. It's another uh, Act 29 church, and I have the uh, pleasure of joining you again this week. For those of you who were here last week, um, you've already you've already met me, and my update is my root canal went fine, and thank you for, yay, he's, he's alive. Uh, the, we were having, my brother, um, uh, who, who's in Seattle, he listened to the sermon last week, he's like, hey, you sounded, you have a, like, you sound like, like, kind of like lispy last week, and I was like, yeah, because I have a lisp. Um, and he's like, how do I not know that? Well, it turns out that actually, uh, there's actually some microphone stuff last week that made my S's unusually lispy. So uh, this week, uh, they're, they're trying to figure that out, and, and so we're using the hand mic. It's like I get to do my best rock star impression. Um, so uh, look, Ma, one-handed. Uh, okay, so let's, let's just start off with our text for today, which is Mark chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you're using one of the free Bibles out front, I think it's on page 490 or so. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day... Among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and to the country, and the people came out to see what had happened. And they came to to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him to go with him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Uh, Lord, we hope that you would incline our hearts to you today and to your truth, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. Uh, We pray that you would shine your light into our hearts so that we can clearly perceive the glory of your Son, Jesus. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock 
in our Redeemer. Well, so we, we, said, we said last week um, that the first eight chapters of Mark are sort of answering this question, who is Jesus? And Mark and Jesus are slowly unraveling or unrolling the answer to that question. And each story is revealing a little more about who Jesus is and what he, what he does for us. Um, and, you know, Charlie and I don't coordinate on, uh, like, here's what the sermon's about, here's what the song's about. So it was very fortuitous that the last song was holy, 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 merciful, and mighty. Because that's going to be one of the themes of this, of this sermon. And if at times Mark seems repetitive, um, because it's continuing to answer that question, who is Jesus, the image that I, I, I like to think about that came to me as, as, as we were sitting here is sort of like you have a diamond, and it's multifaceted. Um, and it's got all these different angles, and the light hits it in different ways, and it's very beautiful, and you turn it just a little bit. And each story, you're turning the diamond just a little bit, um, to, to borrow a metaphor from, from John Piper's inaugural sermon. And that's sort of what we're getting at here, that Jesus is this great diamond, and we're looking at his glory and his holiness in little tiny tweaks. Um, so last week, we saw that Jesus was the master over the natural order, that he has authority over the natural order, even the wind and the sea. And this week... Uh, we have sort of a peculiar text. And, and the, it's peculiar because Jesus gets off the boat, he performs one miracle, he gets back on the boat, and then he goes across the sea, back to Israel, or to Galilee. And so the question is like, okay, he crosses the Sea of Galilee for this one miracle. Why? Why is it, what does it show us? Well, I think part of what it shows us, uh, part of what it's emphasizing is Jesus's uh, mastery over the supernatural order. We have the mastery over the natural order, now we have the mastery over the supernatural order. But more than that, it's, it's showing us that Jesus' authority is not parochial. It's not limited by scope or place. Um, but rather that Jesus is the God over all things, and God, Jesus is the God over all places. Jesus is the God over all things, and Jesus is the God over all places. And as with last week, we'll see there's always a kind of, kind of a not and then a but. There's not this old category, but there is this new category. Jesus is not that, but he is this instead. All right, so let, let's just dive in here. Jesus is the God over all things. Jesus is, so the not here is sort of like the pagan pantheons. You have Zeus, the god of thunder. You have Poseidon, the god of the sea. You have Athena, the god of wisdom. You have Hades, the god of death. And what that results in is sort of like these competing spiritual powers. If you've ever read the Iliad, what you know is that the Iliad, uh, this, this ancient Greek um, uh, epic poem, is about how the gods are sort of warring with each other because, you know, there was some dispute as to who was the prettiest and who was the loveliest, and that, you know, has, has led to this huge war. Um, but, but Jesus is not that way. It's not Jesus versus the other gods, Jesus is the better god, whatever. Uh, it's Jesus is God over all things. He's not God, it's not just God of the seas and God over storms, but he's, he's God over all things. The whole creation, both natural and supernatural, is within his domain. And so, let's, let's see where we're getting this from the text. Well, look at verse 2. It says, And when Jesus had stepped off the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. And then skip down a little bit to verse 5. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, there had always, he had always been crying out and cutting himself with stones. So what, what's interesting and remarkable to me is that we have uh, the word tombs here, and it's repeated three times. So as if, you know, to make sure the author doesn't miss, miss the point, this guy's living in a graveyard. Uh, and, and his numbers 
chapter 11, or chapter 19, verse 11, uh, illustrates that whoever touches the dead body of any unperson is if any unclean person, sorry, whoever touches the body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. The death is associated in the Old Testament with uncleanness, and it transmits from uh, the, the, the dead to the person that touches the dead. So it's sort of like transmissible, this corruption that spreads. But, but Jesus is not deterred. Most people, uh, most other Jews, would move away from this situation. We've got a graveyard, we've got a demon-possessed man, this is, this is, this is unclean central. Um, but Jesus moves towards the situation and he, to make this man spiritually clean. And then also we have this idea that he's an unclean, he's an unclean spirit. Um, so this is all kind of pointing us to, hey, this is unclean central. And normally you would just, you shy away from that. Uh, it'd be your duty as a religiously observant Jew just to, just to avoid the situation entirely to preserve your ritual cleanliness. Uh, but the, and, and, and then notice also that the text emphasizes the power of this demon. Look at verse 3. It said, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. So this is not just any unclean spirit, um, but this is a very powerful unclean spirit. And if this is even a helpful category to think of, um, it might be the most un- powerful unclean spirit in, that we see in, the, in any of the gospel accounts. This, no one had the power to subdue him, um, and, and we see in verse, 19, in verse 9 that his name is Legion, which is uh, like a Roman army unit consisting of about three to 5,000 people maybe. And, and he says, for we are many. And then we see down in verse 13 that when he's exorcised, when the exorcised, the demon, uh, he possesses 2,000 pigs. And so this is, I, I think the implication would be that maybe, I don't know, there's maybe 2,000 demons that are kind of cohabitating in this guy. Um, but the point being that this is not a one-to-one matchup. This is not like the exorcist where the priest comes in at the end and it's one-to-one him versus this demon. Uh, this is a one-to-two-thousand matchup. Uh, that, that this is one exorcist versus many, many demons. And yet, what do we see in verse 6? Well, verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and he ran and fell down before him. And the word fell down before him uh, is, is prostrate in Greek. Um, it's almost always in every other usage in the New Testament translated as worship. It's an acknowledgement that the one to whom you are bowing down is more powerful and praiseworthy than you are. And then look at verse 7. And then crying out, in a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Oh, sorry, and then skip down to verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And he begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So one to two thousand matchup, and the demon is begging Jesus for permission to depart and begging Jesus not to torment him. And then in verse 13, we see Jesus, so he gave him permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And and so I think the natural question a lot of us have is, well, why? Like, what's going on with the pigs, and why are they dying in the sea? And that's a fair question, and we're not going to talk about that today. Um, Because I don't want you to miss what I think is the, the bigger 
thing to see in this verse, which is that he gave them permission that Jesus has matched up one to 2,000, and he is the one setting the terms of the encounter. And so, you know, to illustrate this a little bit, um, I'm going to tell you the tale of two icons. An icon is like a picture or an image. And I'm not, this is not to commend to you icons, um, but rather to illustrate, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, the point, right? So icon number one, image number one. From, we're keeping up with the theme of 1990s reference, so the 1999 comedy film Dogma by Kevin Smith. And, uh, you know, among other things, there's this moment in the, in the film where there's a church leader and he's trying to, like, uh, revamp and modernize and make Christianity popular. Um, and so he's, he's talking about, well, you know, he's talking about the crucifix, and he's like, ah, the crucifix. Well, it's a real bummer. He says, Jesus didn't come to earth to give us the willies. He came to earth to help us out. He was a booster. And so he unveils this new revamped image of Jesus, and informally it's called the Buddy Christ. And it's smiling, and it's winking, and it's kind of making these Shooter McGavin hands at you. Um, and and the, the leader says, doesn't it pop? It's not theologically wrong what he's saying. Like, Jesus is our friend. John 15 teaches us that. But by itself, without more, this, this, this image that they're painting is not the true Jesus. It's sort of a pathetic shadow of the risen Lord. It's an idol made in our own image. Okay, so what's icon two? Well, icon two is this old um, image, and it m mostly appears in the East, and it's called Christ Pantocrator, or Christ Almighty. And it's this mild but stern uh, image of Jesus as the all-powerful judge of humanity. And he's sitting upon the throne of the universe, and he's sort of staring straight ahead right at you with a somber look. And in his left hand, he holds the scriptures. And in his right hand, he's holding out a blessing to his people. And in some variation, he's sitting, some variations, he's sitting upon uh, the judgment seat of the last judgment. And he's deciding the fate of the living and the dead. And yes, he's abounding with mercy towards the sinner. And he's overflowing with steadfast love towards his people. But he's not to be trifled with. He's not a booster. He's our Lord. And I think that second image of Christ Almighty is the image this text is pointing us towards. This is not Jesus, the teacher of the living, but Jesus, the Lord of the living and the dead. And it's not Jesus who keeps himself undefiled, but the Jesus who is so clean that he purifies the unclean. And this is not Jesus, the mighty warrior, but Jesus, the son of the most high God, and not Jesus the great exorcist, look at that, uh, not Jesus the great exorcist, but the Jesus who's so great that even when he's veiled and his glory is veiled in human form, a whole legion of, of demons throw themselves at his feet and beg him for mercy. This is Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so what do we do with this truth that this text is drawing out for us? Well, there's, the text actually gives us two ways that we can respond to it. Okay, the first way starts in verse 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one whom had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. 
So the, the herdsmen see something as remarkable as happened. They run off to tell others. The others are like, oh, this sounds like a really cool story. I'm going to come see for myself. And they see this great miracle. They see their friend, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. And they see Jesus' great might, and their reaction is they are afraid. And, and notice what happens next in verse 16. He says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. So they see his power, and they beg him to leave them. To, they beg him to depart from the region. That's one way we could respond to this text. Jesus is powerful. I'm afraid of that. P- please keep your distance. The second way is in verse 14, uh, 18. And notice the similarity of language here. He says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So we have this man, and he's with the demon and he's experienced the great miracle he hasn't just seen it and he knows what Jesus has done for him and so he begs Jesus to let him go with him and so that's the text that's the choice that this text presents do we uh, beg Christ to depart from us or do we choose to follow him and I think we all naturally sort of want the buddy the buddy Christ we want Jesus the booster Jesus that pops you know, he's smiling at us, he's winking at us, he's praising, pointing at us like, hey, you're the man, you're the woman, and, and he's there to help us out, and he's trendy, and he's ecumenical, and he would never embarrass us in front of our friends. And best of all, he can sort of be left, left at church while we go out into the world. And then we have an experience with the real Christ, the, 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 the Christ Almighty, the Christ the Lord of all. And sort of like the herdsmen and the townsfolk, our natural inclination is to be afraid. Like, oh, I'm, af- you know, I'm afraid of his authority. I'm afraid of his power. And like the herdsmen and the town folk, we want to sort of keep him at arm's length. We don't want to like, let him get too close because of what might happen. We're scared of Jesus because if he is God, then we are not. Or if he is God, then he sets the agenda, and we do not. And, and so how, how, is, how, how can we approach Jesus uh, with trust instead of fear. And I, the, the, the key fact in this text is in verse 19, which reads, And he did not permit him to go with him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So yes, our Lord is mighty, but as the song says, he is also merciful. Listen to this self-disclosure about, or listen to what God says about himself through the Spirit in Psalm 103. Starting in verse 8, he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion, or love, to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust." So, so Jesus doesn't just say that he is merciful. 
The Bible doesn't just say that God is merciful, but it also shows that he is merciful. It shows this most completely in, in, uh, is that he shows his love for us, is that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, uh, he laid down his life to save us. And so the argument of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, is this. It's, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us our thing, give us all things? This is a rhetorical question. It's a, the question is meant to imply the answer. It's that he will. He did the harder thing, that while we were still his enemies, he laid down his life to save us. Uh, and he, so he will do the easier thing. Now that we are his adopted children, he will lavish spiritual blessings upon us. And so God proves his, it doesn't state his love, he shows his love, he proves his love by sending his son to save us. And so having done that, we can know that he is trustworthy. Yes, he is mighty. Yes, he is awesome in the sense of fearful or fearsome, uh, but he is also uh, merciful and trustworthy. And we know that because of what he has done for us. And so that's the invitation of this text. This text is, hey, move towards Christ. Uh, trust in him. Obey him. And, and so if we feel ourselves shrinking back with fear, uh, oh, he's asking too much of me. Oh, he's, you know, what he's, what he's asking me is too difficult. Um, I don't want to give up control of my life. Whatever it is. Well, remember what the Lord has already done for us. He has laid down his life for ours to ransom us from slavery to sin. He has taken our sin upon himself and given us his perfect righteousness. He has united us with himself so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has uh, transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he did all this while we were still his enemies, while we were a rebel in rebellion against the Lord of the universe. And so now that we are his brothers, now that we are his co-heirs of all creation, is he going to suddenly start mistreating us? And so the, the answer, of course, from, from the Apostle Paul is no, he won't. And, and so recalling what the Lord has done for us we, and how he has had mercy on us in the same way that he has had mercy on this demon-possessed man, we can trust in his faithfulness in the future and knowing that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And so we can ask ourselves and answer the question of Romans 8.13, uh, which is, you know, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And then knowing that he will um, and knowing that he is on our side, we have no reason to fear him. We have no reason to beg him to depart from us. We, have, we can trust him. We can move towards him. We can joyfully seek his presence and we can joyfully obey his commandments. And that, I think, is the, is the logic of the first main point of this text. That Jesus is God over all things. That he is powerful in and of himself. And even his, his enemies, even the demons, uh, throw themselves at his feet when he comes and when he returns, but he's also merciful and he's trustworthy. And precisely because he's powerful, we can trust in him because we know that he loves us and he has proven that he loves us. Okay, so, that, so, 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 there, you know, so the question remains, okay, he's, he's so good to his people um, and he's so powerful over his enemies. Well then, who are his enemies? Or put differently, who are his people? And that's sort of the next question that this text is beginning to answer is that God is the God, or Jesus is the God over all places. Jesus is the God over all places. This is not 
sort of like okay, each group has their own god. You have the Canaanite gods. You have the Greek gods over here. You have the Norse gods up there. You have the Egyptian gods down there. No, this is, and it's not sort of God is the god of the Jews only. That's sort of the, tribe, the tribal deity of ethnic Israel, those who are descended from Abraham. Uh, no, he's the god of all people and the god in all places. That he is the god in Israel, to be sure. And he's also god in the country of the Gerasenes. And he's the God in Rome. And he's the God in Austin, Texas. And he's the God in Lagos, Nigeria. And he's the God in Beijing, China. And he's even the God in Pyongyang, North Korea. That he is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. And every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue uh, will obey him. Okay, so where are we getting this from the text? That sounds nice. Let's prove it that this is what God is saying to us through this text. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Okay, so there's, there's some confusion as to what, where exactly this is. Um, is it, you know, like, like which city, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the, the, what's clear from the text, and I think everyone, all the, all the commentators agree, is that it's on the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. We know that because they crossed over. Uh, it's a predominantly Gentile territory. And part of the reason we know that is because that's what the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is. But also, I don't know if you noticed, there's a huge herd of pigs, which are not kosher. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, so everyone here is probably a Gentile, or the, most people are. And so, um, and also he tells the guy, you know, even, even the demon-possessed man, he tells him, go home to your people, you know, which is then the Decapolis. And so we all, and then we see in verse 2, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately the man met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So, so Jesus does not go looking for trouble. Um, he's not even off the boat before he's confronted with the demon. And it seems almost as if that he went here to this exact location precisely to deal with this man. And we know that this man's home and his friends are in the Decapolis, which is the collection of Gentile cities. We know that from verses 19 and 20. And so dollars to donuts, as they say, this man is a Gentile. Um, and, and, you know, Jesus does not let him return with him to Israel, but commands him to proclaim what the Lord has done among the Gentiles. And this is sort of foreshadowing, I think, what is to come. Uh, we know that, that Jesus' ministry is primarily to the lost sheep of Israel because Jesus says that. But we also know that in Acts chapter 10, God is going to instruct Peter uh, to expand his ministry to include the Gentiles. And in the Acts chapter 15, all of the apostles will affirm this decision and codify it. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reveals that God has put to death the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and he's united them to one body in one body through the cross, that he's made them part of the same commonwealth, what he describes as the commonwealth of Israel. And so this story is sort of like an acted-out parable. Yes, it really happened. I don't want to imply that it didn't. But it also illustrates the truth. It's a story that illustrates the truth. That Jesus was in Galilee, and he's ministering to his people, the lost sheep of Israel. And he was drawing a big crowd, and he was having a big impact, and he's probably dead tired, we know from the other gospel accounts. And he's exhausted from his work, and suddenly Jesus stops, and he packs up what he's doing, and he gets on a boat, and he travels across a stormy sea at night, and then he gets off the boat precisely where he's supposed to be, 
And he uh, liberates this man from slavery to an unclean spirit. He commands him, hey, go tell others what the Lord has done for you. Gets back on the boat, and he goes back to Galilee. So, he, in, in other words, it's sort of like, we know that his ministry is to the, is to the, to the lost sheep of Israel, but he leaves the 99 and crosses the stormy sea to find this one Gentile. And we don't see the full inclusion of the Gentiles yet. Uh, Gentile, by the way, is just a word that means non-Jew. It's like the, the, like the nations. So, so the two categories of people in the, in the New Testament, you have, you have Jews, or to have people in the Bible, you have Jews, that is to say those who are ethnic descendants of Israel, and Gentiles, everyone who is not. Okay, uh, uh, so, so we don't see the full inclusion of the Gentiles yet, but this story is illustrating the heart of God for the Gentiles. That he's never been just the tribal deity of ethnic Israel, but Israel was always a vehicle for blessing. They were blessed so they could be a blessing to others. It's not like Israel was plan A, and then, oh no, that didn't work out. Mulligan, plan B, here's Jesus. But rather, that the plan has always been that, uh, uh, that Israel, or that the people of God, would be a blessing to the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles, and that they would ultimately be united together in the people of God, and, in, and particularly in Christ. And so here's how plan A is supposed to end. This is from uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, starting in verse 9. So this is, I think, one of the various pictures. Revelation has a series of pictures that sort of repeat as to what the end of days will look like, and this is one of those pictures. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That the end result of God's plan is the inclusion of all peoples in his people that everyone would fall down and bow down and praise God and worship him. And so this, this text is illustrating God's plan and God's heart for the Gentiles. It's sort of, it's sort of like foreshadowing what's about to come. And, and, but it also points us to something bigger, I think. If you can get bigger than that, it gets, it gets bigger. That uh, It's not just that Jesus was in Galilee and then crosses over the sea to the Gentile territories, but, but you know, uh, Jesus was in heaven— and he's eternally delighting in the company of the Father and the Holy Spirit. God delights in himself. And since before the foundation, he's been doing this. He's been perfectly satisfied. He's been perfectly sufficient. It's not like, oh no, God needs some people, you know, whatever. Like, God's got all he needs in himself. Um, that's one of his attributes. But then in the fullness of time, suddenly he stops and he packs up what he's doing and the word becomes flesh and he dwells among us and the true light uh, comes into the world and it's a world full of fallen sinners in rebellion against their God and he comes to his people and his people reject him. Uh, he's the light and they love darkness. And this is not, I think, that they're anything remarkable about them. I think we all, love, I think we all hate the light. We all love darkness naturally. And so we're like the townspeople they were afraid of him, and they scorn him, and they beat him, and they put on a show trial, and they railroad him, and they execute him, and well, they strip him naked first, 
And then they execute him upon a cross. And so we have the author of creation. He's just sort of hanging there like a lifeless carcass in the Palestinian spring. And, and he's hung up there naked in shame for all to see and laugh. Like, oh, this is what happens to rebels. Uh, it's, it's the ultimate cosmic irony, right? The God of the universe comes on a rescue mission to offer rebels amnesty. And the rebels not only refuse to be rescued, but they execute the king as a rebel. Right? And so that's like, okay, but, but then God uses this very act of rebellion. This is part of his plan, and it's part of his plan to save us. That turns out that death cannot hold the author of life, and sin cannot bind the sinless one, and uh, death has no power over him. Death has no sting. And so the rulers and the authorities of the world sought to put our Lord to shame, but this is precisely the vehicle that God uses to shame them. Uh, to, to nail our sin to the cross, to disarm the rulers and the authorities of the world, to put them to shame and to triumph over them. Listen to these words from uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this is, this is the irony, that God gave up his only son that whomsoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so we can believe in this Jesus, Jesus our great rescuer, Jesus who seeks out the lost, wherever they are, that Jesus, we have Jesus the good shepherd, not just the good shepherd that he leaves the 99 to go seek that one lost sheep, but Jesus the good shepherd in the sense that he lays down his life for the sheep. So how do we apply this truth that this text is pointing us towards of the, the, the great mission of Jesus in the gospel to redeem all, all the nations? Well, it sort of depends on what your relationship with Jesus is. Right? So if your relationship with Jesus is that you have not yet trusted in Christ, uh, then this text is an invitation to do so. It's, we don't need to have it all figured out. There's not some good work we need to do. We don't need to clean ourselves up and make ourselves holy. We can just be sitting in a graveyard, you know, possessed by demons, uh, you know, chained up and uh, whatever. Um, right where we are, in, you know, in the privacy of your own heart, sitting there in the seat, uh, you, you know, you can know that God is extending his offer and his hand of mercy to you, and he's offering amnesty to anyone who will believe in his son. And so, so we can trust in the Lord Jesus, and we will be saved. And it's as simple as that. Okay, so that's, that, if, that's, if, that's, if that's your condition, that's your relationship with Jesus, that's the way to respond to this text, I think. Now, if you've already trusted in Christ— which I think is probably more the, the, the default, but by no means, I think, the standard. Um, this text has a more specific application, uh, and it's in verse 19 and 20, which says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So the man, this Gentile man, the man with the demon, he asked to go with Jesus, and uh, Jesus says no. 
And that's another one of those questions that's sort of like interesting, like, oh, that's going to be kind of a hard question. And we're not really going to deal with it today either. Um, except suffice it to say, Jesus' mission is to the lost sheep of Israel primarily. He's going to go to the Jews first, and then only after, after that will they go to the Gentiles. And so having a Gentile in tow probably does not really fit with the plan of going back to Israel. As we know from like Acts, for example, like having Titus around um, is a big, it causes a big ruckus with Paul. Um, so it probably does not really fit into the plan. So he gives them a different mission. Now, you're going you're gonna to follow me in, in, in a manner of speaking. You're going to go to your people, the Gentiles, and you're going to tell them what the Lord has done for you, and you tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you. And he sort of appoints this man, I think, to be, the, as far as I know, the first missionary to the Gentiles. Uh, I mean, Jonah, I guess. But, um, you know, he's, he's not, this man is not filled with theological truth. He's not, you know, he hasn't been through the evangelism boot camp. He literally just got saved, you know, minutes ago. Uh, he's not apologetically gifted. Like, he's not like a, you know, he, he hasn't been studying all the arguments um, from Case for Christ. But he is armed with one simple truth, which is that the Lord has done great things for him. And so when he does so, when he goes out and proclaims what the Lord has done for him from his own experience, everyone marvels. Um, you know, so... As I look out, you know, uh, barring maybe one or two people who are, who are ethnically Jewish, there's a lot of Gentiles in here um, from different contexts. And, uh, you know, so, so the text, I think, is saying, hey, go to your friends, go to your family, go to wherever your home is, um, and tell them what the Lord has done for you. And tell them how he has had mercy on you. Not necessarily with bold apologetic arguments, although if you're good at that, by all means, but more from your own experience. Um, sort of like this, like this man in this text. Not in your theological strength and wisdom, but armed with the simple truth that God has done great things for you, that God has shown you mercy. And so let the Lord use you as a missionary to your friends uh, and your family, proclaiming a message of free grace and reconciliation and trusting that in the fullness of time, others will marvel at his goodness and what he has done for you. So there we have it. Okay, that's, that's, that's the text. Um, there's a lot more to be said, but I think that's the, the, the two main things that, that I think are most clearly on display in this text. That number one, that Jesus is the God over all things. He has mastery even over death, even over the unclean, even over the demons, that he is Christ Almighty and there's no one else like him. Uh, he, he, he is mighty, yes, but he is also merciful. And because of that, because he is both merciful and mighty, as the hymn says, we can trust in him completely. And then number two, that Jesus is the God over all places, or the God of all peoples. That he's on a rescue mission to save people out of every nation, and every tribe, and every tongue. Um, and he seeks out even the Gentiles, who are the enemies of God. And he, he's a good shepherd who doesn't just seek out the lost sheep, but he lays down his life for the lost sheep. And he, he takes our sin upon himself so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. And knowing that he's done all these great things for us, uh, we can tell others and hope that they are encouraged to draw near to him as well. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we, we praise you for your power. You are a rock and a refuge to those who believe in you. Uh, you keep our feet from slipping and accomplish 
all that you set out to do. Um, you will liberate us from the power of wickedness and sin and make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You strengthen us and uphold us with your righteous right hand. And since you are for us, we have nothing to fear from those who are against us. Lord, we praise you for your mercy, that you are tenderhearted towards those who fear you, that you are a good shepherd uh, who seeks out lost sheep and lays down your life for them. And you know uh, that we are dust and you sympathize with our weakness. So please help us to trust in you. Please help us to trust in your might. Please help us to trust in your mercy. Uh, give us hearts that rejoice in your truth and strive to obey it. Uh, help us to trust you and to obey you, uh, knowing that you would never lead us astray. And help us to remember all that you've done for us and how you have had mercy on us. And give us boldness to proclaim that and your message of salvation to others, that you've poured out your love and mercy into our lives and help us rejoice in this truth and tell, and tell others about us and guard us of being ashamed of you and of your word and empower us to go out into the world this week. We pray all these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com. 